All right. So uh, last week I, I mentioned my preference of reading all the way through the passage um, at the beginning of the sermon that we're about to, you know, the passage we're about to cover, reading all the way through it from beginning to ending. And that sometimes I, you know, I don't get a chance to do that. And I had a couple people ask me like, aren't, I mean, aren't you the one who decides whether or not you do that? And, and so, yes, technically that is true. Um, so, you'll know, we actually go through the entire passage um, each time um, that we're looking at it. It's just whether or not we, it's broken up into pieces or whether or not it's also at the beginning, from beginning to ending. And I decide that, just to give you a little uh, look behind the veil here. So, I decide that when the sermon is done, do I have time to read that passage at the beginning? Because those of you who are teachers or leaders or preachers or whatever, you know um, far and away <laughs> the most difficult thing about teaching and preaching, especially God's Word, is knowing when to stop, um, is knowing what to leave out. Um, any one of these passages, you could teach for hours and hours on any one of them. The details and the, the intricacies that are there could be taught um, for much longer than we do. Um, you'll see sermons, in fact, I saw one this week of a guy who did all of 22 and 23 in a single sermon, which seems phenomenal to me, but obviously that just meant he had to cut a bunch of stuff that we've looked at and we've covered, which is totally fine. Um, so that's, that's the process to go through. I have to go through each time is what do I cut? What do I keep? Um, and, uh, and then if once I've cut the stuff that I can absolutely tolerate thinking that I cannot, that I'm not going to share, is there room then to read the whole passage at the beginning? But in case you wonder, if you come week after week, you have heard read every, the entire passage, everything that we cover, all of first John, I mean, all of John, um, all of Daniel, all of First Samuel, like you've, you've actually been, been exposed to every part of those uh, books as we've gone through it. And <clears throat> I also want to comment on how much I appreciate, I mean, I'm honored to get to do this. This is such an amazing thing to get to do. Um, to have the opportunity to teach through God's Word and to focus time and attention on it every week like this is just a huge blessing. So um, I'm very appreciative for the opportunity. I'm going to pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 23. I'm going to pick up in verse 9. Now, we made it further than this um, last week, but I'm going to come back to kind of pick up a head start and also to cover something that I promised that I would, which will um, take some time, but I think it's worth doing. It's a lot of fun. So I'm going to start in verse 9. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. So again, he's now has the ephod, meaning he's got the, the Abiathar brought with him, the ephod, meaning he's got the, the Urim and the Thuman stones, which were a special thing God gave to his people with his priests um, in the Hebrew scripture that when the, when the time was right, they could ask yes, very clear yes or no questions of God. And God would apparently divinely answer those yes or no questions. So that's what happened. David bring, has the ephod brought to him. <clears throat> David asks the question, um, is Saul coming for me here in Keilah? And God through the ephod stone, so the priest reaches in, pulls out the stones, and the answer is very clearly communicated to him, yes, he will. David says, okay, well, if he's going to come after me, will the people of Keilah turn me and my men over to Saul? And God says again, gives a, they pull the stones and gets a very clear 
Yes, he will answer. Okay, so that's, that's what's going on here. <laughs> now, this brings up an interesting conversation, interesting topic that we get to wrestle with this morning. And those of you who are more minded along the, I like diving into the, to the intricacies and the fine points of theology, you're going to have a lot of fun with this. Um, here's the deal. God is omniscient. We talk about God's, God, the, some of the traits of God, and one of them is all the omni traits, the omnipotent, meaning all-powerful, or omnipresent, meaning in all places, or omniscient, which means knowing all things. Now, what that means is, and people debate about this, obviously, we're talking about God, so we will debate about it, but the idea is that, that all true statements God knows are true. So God knows all true statements. Now, I'm going to muddy this for you just a little bit, because to know all true statements also means to know all false statements are false. Explain. So if I say two plus two is four, that's a true statement, so God knows it, right? God knows that two plus two is four. If I say two plus two is five is false, that is therefore a true statement, and God would therefore know it. So God knows all truth, including all truth that is based on something that is false. Now, I know I just lost a whole bunch of you. That's okay. I know it's Sunday morning. <laughs> you may need some more coffee. So we're going we're gonna to dive into this and how this really wild concept plays out here. So here's the deal. If God knows all true statements, even about the future, God knows which, if I say it is a true statement that in a little while I'm going to leave out that door, well, God knows whether that's a true statement or a false statement. I don't know yet, but he does, whether that's a true statement or a false statement. So God knows the future. Now that's kind of wild. This has created a problem for human beings ever since the idea of a single God, monotheism, came into the first human's mind. So the, the first person who had to wrestle with this, <coughs> they have had to wrestle with, and by the way, you go back to the writings, everybody who wrestles with these questions um, does so. They have to. Because this idea of God's omniscience really kind of puts a crimp in the idea of human freedom. So if God knows what I'm going to do, am I still the one choosing to do it? So that creates a problem. If humans have no freedom, how can we be held responsible for our choices? In other words, if God is the one who is sovereignly making all these decisions, not us, well, then isn't then God responsible for my sin if I sin? I mean, if I sin, isn't God the one making me sin since he's the one making all the decisions? If I don't trust him as my savior, isn't God the one making that decision, not me? Well, that creates a problem, obviously. <laughs> if, how can we be responsible for accepting his free gift or rejecting it if we don't have freedom? If we do have freedom, what about his sovereign choice and his knowledge of the future? How is that possible if we do have freedom? Many of you have wondered this type of stuff over the years, and you're by no means the only one. These are good questions and theologically potent ones. Now, so if we are not free, what is the role of judgment for our sin? Now, some of you do, is you just go like, listen, I just chalked that up to a mystery, which you are absolutely allowed to do, by the way. That is obviously to some degree anything that are really tough questions like this, especially about the character of God and the nature of his existence is going to be a mystery. That's not a cop-out. All human relationships are mysteries, right? My wife is a mystery to me sometimes. I know you are a mystery to me at times. I am perfectly aware of the fact that the things I do, sometimes you're like, why? 
Like that is a, I am a mystery to you. That is what it means. Part of what it means to be human is we can't fully understand other people's perspectives, their viewpoints. Well, if we can't understand each other's, we certainly aren't going to be able to just kind of wrap our brain around the way God exists and his, the nature of his existence. Like we're not just going to be like, oh, got it, nailed it. Like I've, that's not going to happen. So there is going to always be a sense of mystery for us in regards to anything, certainly in regards to God, because we aren't omniscient. We're just trudging through life one second per second, doing the best we can, right? That's about all we've got. But if you don't want to chalk that up just to mystery, um, then you're, you're going to join in with some people like this fellow, a guy named Luis de Molina. So Luis de Molina was a Spanish Jesuit priest in the late 1500s. And he wanted to really wrestle with, he wanted to offer a rational argument that integrated human moral freedom and Augustinian predestination. These two ideas, the biblical picture that God just sovereign and that he chooses and that he predestines and what is clearly also taught biblically that human beings are responsible for our decisions. So, so Louis de Molina said, I think those must fit together somehow, but how? <laughs> and so you know that many people since then have argued that they can't work together, but he had some ideas. Um, what does it mean when God describes something that doesn't happen. Well, this is one of the things that got Luis de Molina's uh, attention. What about the places in the Bible when God describes what's called a counterfactual? When he says, this is what would happen. But it's in a condition when those things don't happen. And we just saw one in 1 Samuel chapter 23. David says, if I stay in Keilah, will Saul come? And notice God doesn't say, well, I don't know, because you're going to leave. Like, I know the future, and the future is you're going to leave with your men, so I don't know what would have happened if you'd stayed, but you're not going to stay, you're going to leave. And so, but instead, God answers the question, yes, if you stay, Saul will come. That's fascinating. See, for us, just like Saul, David, and, and everybody else, that we just skimmed right past that. But Louis de Molina said, wait a minute, that's significant. That's, that's a big deal. Well, if I, if I do stay and Saul comes, will the people turn me over to him? Absolutely. Yes. God doesn't, again, God doesn't say, I mean, don't know, because you're leaving. I don't know what would have happened if you'd stayed. I know what happens uh, if you leave, but that's a really wild, God isn't confused by the question. So God not only knows the future, but he knows a future that won't happen. How about that? God knows all the futures. Louis de Molina began to unpack this, what is now called Molinism because of his name or where he was from, this idea of like, well, what about God having this type of knowledge, this mid, what's called middle knowledge? I know all possible futures. We see it several times. Maybe the next most famous one is in Matthew 11, verse 21. Again, we've skimmed over this, not a big deal. They don't have that one, so don't look on the screens for it. But woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Notice Jesus is just describing what would have happened under a certain condition. And maybe you go like, well, maybe he's just doing that like we do. Like, well, man, if you'd talked one more second, I'd have grounded you for a year, right? Maybe that's what you're thinking. Like, maybe it's that simple. But I think it's not. I think Jesus here is proclaiming a truth. The truth is, if these same type of miracles were done there they would repent. By the way, the point he makes is, therefore, when you face judgment someday, judgment will be worse for you than them because you had these miracles. So how does this play out in regards to human choices? I'm glad you asked. 
here's what, here's what Molina and others have unpacked is this idea. Imagine, if you will, a painter who has a blank canvas, a totally blank canvas. I have a picture to kind of illustrate this, right? And you go, I want, I want to, I'm going to decide what I'm going to paint. And at that point it's blank and you can do anything you want. You can do anything you want to do up on your canvas. Well, you start making decisions. You start making decisions. I'm going to decide, okay, you know what? I'm going to do a human being, or I'm going to do still life, or I'm going to do a landscape, or, or whatever. And when you do that, you're narrowing what you're going to do. You're taking some options off the table. Now, you're the one doing it. No one's making you do that. You go, I'm going to paint a portrait. So then landscape is off the table. And you're the one making those limitations. You're narrowing in your options. Now, it's not truly a limitless option because we're humans. We're limited. But imagine God, when God says, you know what? I think I'm going to create I'm going to create something. At that moment, God has literal limitless options. Actual, literal, no hand, no holds barred. He can create anything he wants. Now imagine the minute he says, I think I'm going to create a physical universe. Well, all the invisible universe options are now off the table. He can do that too if he wants, but he's going, I'm going to, I'm going to create a physical universe. And then he says, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create a rational universe. I'm going to create a universe where there are rules, and the rules are followed by the universe. Sure, I can step in and, and break those rules whenever I want to, miraculously, but in general, there's going to be these rules. My, I'm going to create things that can predict what's going to happen tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. They're going to be able to understand, and understand these rules and laws. Make sense? So God says he's going to do that. So all the irrational creations are now off the table. And what you get are these, these universes in God's mind as he's going, I could create this, I could create this, I could create this. And every time he makes a decision, he's moving universes out of his choices. He's narrowing his choices for himself. But he still knows what was in those. He still knows what was in those because those were in his mind and he knows everything that happens in those universes. God knows what happens in the universe where David stays in Keilah. And he knows what happens in the universes when David doesn't stay in Keilah. God also knows which universe he actually created. He chose one of those. He chose the universe in which David left Keilah. And that's how he chose it. So who decided whether David was going to leave Keilah? Was it David or was it God? And in this mindset, in the Louis de Molina's um, theoretical perspective was both. David truly, freely decided to leave Keilah. And yet, by choosing the universe in which David did that, God is freely, sovereignly, limitlessly choosing for David to leave Keilah. There would be billions of universes, potential universes, in which I did not freely accept the free gift of God's salvation. In which the conditions for me to put my faith in Christ did not exist. And those are universes that he could have and would have rightly, if he did, choose sovereignly those universes. He chose the universe in which the miracles of Jesus were not, they were not in Tyre and Sidon, they were in Chorazim and Bethsaida. So there would be billions of universes in which I did not freely choose him of my own will. But he didn't choose those universes, he chose the universe in which I did. So who chose whom? And what, what Louis de Molina wanted us to see is that there are ways that God can absolutely, freely, sovereignly choose us, and yet at the same time, we can freely choose what we do and be responsible for them. And they don't have to cancel each other out. Now for some of you, this is like, well, that was worth the price of admission. That was awesome. I've never heard of that before. I can't wait to research that. 
I've got some articles on my website. Um, Dr. William Lane Craig is one of the main proponents of this teaching today, both the philosopher and theologian. I highly recommend it. It's fascinating, and it plays out in a thousand different ways in theology. It's really intriguing. But there's a couple of things I wanted you to see. One, that that temptation for us to pit things against each other that the Bible does not pit against each other is a bad habit. We need not do that. I love that there are people who want to dive into it to such a degree that they can show it is plausible for these two things to both be true. Is this the way that they're both true? I don't know. I don't know. But this shows that it's plausible for them to both be true. Again, you may be going like, I just want to stick with it being a mystery. Be at peace. You're fine. That's totally appropriate. There's nothing wrong with that. The other thing I want you to see is this is hidden here in the middle of 1 Samuel chapter 23. Did David or Saul or Abiathar or any of these other people go, hey, you know what? Let's revolutionize theology here. Let's totally take a, a totally different direction with how people can engage with theology. Of course not. Welcome to the word inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by a prophet 3,000 years ago. David, who of course is unaware he's revolutionizing theology, moves on. Verse 14. David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country in the wilderness of Ziph. We'll come back to that. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. Well, this is, this is like the 10th time we've had that phrase used. So I think we need to unpack this a little bit. So sorry, we're not going to move very fast through these first couple of verses, but this hand motif is becoming unavoidable. It's showing up over and over again, all through first Samuel, but especially in these few chapters. So we're, let's talk a little bit about this. Maybe, maybe the, the fine points of theology is kind of boring to you and that's a snooze fest and, and you're, you're more interested in um, the personal engagement of your own life and experience. Maybe that's that's where you, where you engage better. Well, I want to I throw this one at you. The hand motif, I think, falls soundly into both of them. So look at this. Just in the last two chapters, we've had Abiathar come to David with an ephod in his hand. Interesting terminology. Saul claimed that God had given David, quote, into his hand. The men of Keilah will surrender David into Saul's hand. God did not give David into Saul's hand hand. Jonathan strengthened, we'll see this in a second again, Jonathan strengthened David's hand in God and promised that the hand of Saul would not find him. Just in this chapter, hands are a big deal, which makes sense. Hands are a big deal. This is how we relate to one another. We relate to one another with our words and with our hands. This is the main way that we connect with other human beings is with our hands. So we walk around shaking hands or bumping fists or patting each other on the back. There's something very powerful about these hands that God has given us. They're a big deal. And in our culture, we know many, many different hand-based idioms, don't we? We know them like the back of our hands. That's how well we know these idioms. We know better than to bite the hand that feeds us, and we know not to get caught with our hand in the cookie jar. We could give ourselves a hand uh, because, and I've got to hand it to you, you're an old hand at not letting things get out of hand. This is a, it's a constant, by the way, please don't take that as a backhanded compliment. They are, they are, hands are a powerful picture for us and our language and our lives really revolve around the significance of these hands that God has given us. And so it's not surprising that the, the idea of power is often placed in hands biblically, that we hear about God's right, the right hand of God's power. 
And we're going to discuss that in just a second. We, we see that played out. Or how being placed in someone's hand is another way of falling under their power. Or falling into their hands is somehow meaning that their hands are what are doing devastating work for you. Um, uh, I, I love the picture. There's, uh, there's these, the, the memes of dad rescues. I love those super dad ones. And this is, this is truly one of my very favorites just because the kid is so clueless. Like I just, there's something about that that I just love. The kid's like, um, uh, he's feeding his farm people. What's the deal with the, and this baseball bat comes flying up into the stands and this dad reaches out his hand and blocks it, um, with his hand. I, I, I love this kind of picture. This is a picture and by the way, I think naturally we kind of go to, I, don't, I mean, at least I do, my dad's hands when I think about hands, especially when I connect them to power. Power and hand, and I think about dad's hands. My grandfather in particular, uh, my grandfather could do anything with his hands. It was unreal. He could fix anything or build anything. And I, I remember so well looking at his hands and how um, when I was younger, um, all the, the scars on the back of his hand and just the, the limitless wrinkles on the back of his hand and all the age spots and, and how his hands had become almost translucent. The skin on his hands were almost translucent. And I remember the, the, rough, the roughness of the inside of his hands. I remember um, when my mom would rub my back, it wasn't as good as my dad rubbing my back because his hands were so rough it made for a much more scratchy experience. Like it was, it was just a wild, like the, 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 the calluses that were there and, the, and all of that. It just... I had to, and to the degree that I remember distinctly when my grandfather would drive us in his pickup truck, and I remember the sound that the steering wheel made as it ran through his hands as he would let go and, and let, as it turned itself. Like all these are very, very vivid for me, these pictures of my grandfather's hand. And so I remember so distinctly that we, we can experience hands in different ways. For some of us, when we think of hands, especially our father's hands or our grandfather's hands, um, it can be really positive. When we think about people's hands around us, we can think of hands as an encouragement, as comfort. Hands create pleasure. They offer protection. Often hands can be used as a weapon and sometimes for abuse. And so different ones of us have different instinctive responses to the idea of hands. When I was being trained in art, the art aspects of play therapy, um, it was sobering to learn that very often children who are in abusive situations, um, when they draw their family, will draw the hands of the abuser as massively outsized. Uh, because that's what they're, the, the power that this person has in their life and the danger they represent of these oversized hands. So I think it's intriguing. It's a good question for us. How do we intuit the hands of the Father? How do we picture his hands? So I'm going to let God himself redeem this for you. If, if, if the picture of hands, especially the father's hands, are uncomfortable um, or sound scary. Revelation 1.17. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And the midst of the lampstands was like a son of man, clothed in long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This is the person of Jesus Christ in, in all of his glory, not, not taking on the form of human flesh, not wandering around like the son uh, of a man who works with his hands 
but with, with sweaty armpits and dust and dirt all over him and, and smelling bad and all the things that Jesus would have experienced here on earth. But now this is Jesus in all of his glory. And you'll notice how scary a figure he is, how intimidating a figure he is, how over the top this massive figure walking around um, glowing and, and, like, like, and on fire and, and having this sword proceeding from their mouth and, and stars spinning above their hand. I mean, that's a massive idea. And so we get this picture of this terrifying, awesome image of Jesus Christ coming in for judgment, by the way. And so here's what happens. When I saw him, John, uh, I fell at his feet as though dead. But look at what this awesome creator, terrifying person who carries stars in his right hand, look at what he does. But he laid his right hand on me. Fear not. I am the first and the last. Let, let God redeem this idea of, yes, are his hands powerful? Yes. Do they carry stars? And yes. And yet, that the same soft, probably calloused hands that lay on us and comfort us. The reminder that his hands are something that we look to. God's hands, even in all his glory, offer protection and comfort. Truly, his rod and his staff, they comfort us. Verse uh, 15, David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, will not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. Um, there's every, every author who writes about this, every commentary, every preacher has to comment on the fact that how fascinating it is that Saul and his men are trudging all around Israel looking for David, and Jonathan knows exactly where he is. Is this, one had the image, um, one uh, talked about this idea that, that David would see Saul from hiding and that his army marching around looking for David and the armies of Saul encamp nearby and Jonathan just sneaks off and goes straight to David because he knows exactly where David, his best friend, would hide. Maybe that's the case. Um, between services, Chad uh, Larson and I were talking. I like this idea. Chad said, Chad said, do you imagine that these guys who have been searching for David all over, like they can't find him? After all this time, they can't find him. Maybe the truth is that Saul's men aren't looking that hard. You ever, you ever hunted for your kids hide and seek in the house? You know, when they're little? I'm going to break something to you kids, so sorry about this. Sometimes your parents find you way before they let you know. You ever done that one where you're like, you go into the bathroom and you, and you look behind, the, you're looking into the, I wonder if they're in the shower. No, they're not in the shower. I can't find them anywhere. Uh, you, we wonder if like, if this is what David's men are doing is like, all right, sure, Saul, we'll go look for David because we can't wait to find the giant killer to fight him. Yeah, that's right. That's right. We can't wait to go fight. The, oh yeah, Saul, you've killed your thousands and David is tens of thousands. I can't wait to go find him to go to war against him. That'll be awesome. And so they're walking around the woods like, nope, don't see him anywhere. I guess we just have to give up and go back. Like, I think that's certainly plausible. I wouldn't want to fight David <laughs> or any of his men. I'm certainly not in the dark, in the wilderness, in the woods. Like, I, I think I'll just kind of hunt around not too well. Besides the fact, they probably like David better than Saul. And so the image, I like that imagery and that everyone, maybe, maybe everyone but Saul knows where David is. Maybe that's the truth is that everyone, but like David's like sitting out in a lawn chair and uh, no one's telling Saul where he is. I, I don't know. <laughs> um, so um, and one commentary, so I told that, oh, that's, I mentioned that he knew that he knew Jonathan. I love that Jonathan not only knows where David is, but he knows that David needs encouragement. 
He's able to project. My guess is David is pretty, pretty beat down by now. He's been faithful. He's tried all these things. He just went and rescued Keilah and then had to run off. He probably needs some encouragement. So I love that he goes and finds him and encourages him. I love the language there when it says um, that Jonathan rose and went to David and strengthened his hand in God. What a great terminology to encourage him, to help his hand be ready for what's coming next. It reminded me of the Proverbs 27, 17. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Um, in the Hebrew, the, 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 um, probably the implication is that he sharpens the countenance, the heart of another. Um, this is not just bad. Sometimes people use this as like, so Christian friendships are supposed to hurt all the time. And that's not, obviously that's not the case what's being taught here. It, they do, however, prepare us for battle. They prepare us for what we're going to face. That's exactly what Jonathan is doing. He's meeting up with David. It's like God does with Jesus, with Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus' friends, his father, they show up and they're preparing him for what he's about to have to face. Um, this is a power of friendship. It is very clear biblically that God intends for us to have close friendships with people who can speak the truth to us and comfort us and prepare us for what's coming. You can't even begin to, to overestimate the, the power of that type of friendship. Meanwhile, while Jonathan is encouraging him, the Ziphites are not. So he's hiding in Ziph. Verse 19, the Ziphites went to Saul at Gibeah saying, Is not David hiding among us and the strongholds at Horish on the hill of Hakalah, which is south of Jeshimon? Well, now come down, O king, according to your heart's desire to come down, and our part will be to surrender him into your hands. They know exactly where David is. I mean, this is pretty precise, which is going to be wild because in a minute Saul's going to say, I want more precise, but... David has a thought about this. In fact, we know exactly what David's thoughts were about this because there's a psalm written about this precise moment. The 54th Psalm to the choir master with stringed instruments, a masculine of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? I mean, that's, that's pretty, pretty precise, right? It's that exact moment. And here's what David wrote. Oh God, save me by your name and vindicate me with your might. Oh God, hear my prayer. Give ears to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. So what's Saul's response to the Ziphites coming to sell out David? Saul said, may you be blessed by the Lord. For you've had compassion on me. I, I want to encourage you with something real quick, just as a side note. In the next few weeks, we're going to see... Um, what is called in psychological circles and counseling circles, the abuse cycle played out in Saul's life. The way Saul is going to engage with the key people around him is going to be very abusive. And it's going to fit a lot of the patterns that we look for, which is fascinating to me that those play out together so well. In this situation, notice how quick Saul, who is in absolute rebellion against God, in absolute defiance of God, who has been unanointed by God and, and rejected by God, how quick he is to call on God's name as if God's on his side. This is an incredible abuse pattern to do this. When someone is in a situation where they're so abusive, but they still are so quick to go like, no, 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 me and God, we're good. May, God, may you be blessed by the Lord. You've had compassion on me. Go and make yet more sure of where he is. Know and see the place where his foot is. And who has seen him there, for it has told me he is very cunning. Which is another one, by the way. So it's really David is the problem here. David's just so cunning. I actually thought about, uh, Chad, I thought about that verse after we had talked, was imagining, I've been told he's very cunning. 
Yeah, by the guys who probably aren't looking that hard for him. Like, we just can't find him anywhere. He's so sneaky. I don't, I don't know if that's what's going on or not. But I've been told he is very cunning. Um, See, therefore, and take note of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with certain information. Then I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. So who are these Ziphites? Um, We know almost nothing about them. They don't show up in the Bible anywhere except just right here. And then in a couple more chapters, they show up again to pull the same stunt. They are Israelites which is bad enough. They're getting themselves involved in this. Um, They live in the wilderness, so maybe they're thinking, man, our life is hard. Maybe if we can ingratiate ourselves with the king, our life will get a little easier. But what makes matters worse is David calls them strangers. I think uh, either sarcastically or euphemistically, they are not strangers. They are from the tribe of Judah, David's tribe. David knows who the Ziphites are, and they know who David is. This is is meant to be portrayed as a betrayal. The Ziphites are betraying David, a member of their own tribe, to Saul. The cycle that we see in the life of David of comfort from God and sometimes from people, followed by rejection by people who are in rebellion against God or who are seeking after their own, will continue. I think that pattern is there in 1 Samuel because that is the pattern of human life. That's the pattern of human life. If you haven't caught on yet to the fact that there will be relationships that turn on you, betray you, and let you down, and there will be other relationships that lift you up, and sometimes those are the ones later that turn on you and betray you, and sometimes the others are the ones that lift you up. Welcome to being a human among humans. Um, We we may be redeemed even as Christians, uh, but the truth is we're still flawed. And so that's part of what we're talking about when we talk about that dysfunctional family that we are. David must have heard about this, all this going on, because he took his men further south. This tells us, now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah, um, to the south of Jeshuman. So he's, he's headed south now. And Saul and his men went there to seek him. And David was told, uh, and so he went to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul, As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. I I like to bring things to life and to unpack things the way they look, but we don't have enough here. I don't know how to describe what's happening here. Here's what I think is going on. Um, And one of the things I think we have to be careful of is we want to make this like an afternoon event (coughs) versus this, this, what's being accounted here may have taken days or weeks. David and his men go hide near a, near a giant rock. It's a kind of a hill slash mountain in a place called Maon. And his men, he and his men are hiding there. It's in the Judean wilderness. We'll look at that in just a second. It's in the Judean wilderness, which is, which is a, a, a not, a, not a fun place to be. Um, we, it, it's dry, it's rocky, and, and there are ravines and holes and, and giant boulders and stuff like that everywhere. And it may even be there's a little bit of a forest here, It's hard to tell in the passage there was before where they were at Horesh. Maybe there's not here. But regardless, here's what's happening. Saul, it seems like Saul and his men, probably thousands, um, are creeping up on David and his men. And David goes and hides by this certain giant rock. And his men are probably all hiding in the ravines and spread out in the caves and the rocks and all these things. And, and, and Saul and his men come slowly. They're chasing them. And so here's this rock. And, and Saul decides to turn right with his army to go around the rock. And so David's like circling the rock one direction, trying to stay ahead of Saul. But slowly but surely, it seems like Saul and his men are encompassing David and his. And again, with all that we just talked about, 
imagine either side of this, this, how scary a situation this is, rocks and ravines and, and dry riverbeds, and you're creeping around at night um, trying to find this enemy who you don't want to find them suddenly, and you, that neither side, like David's men don't want to suddenly come across a bunch of Saul's men, Saul's men don't want to suddenly come across David and a bunch of his men. Like this would be a scary, dangerous, very dangerous situation. A side effect is surrounded by wild animals and, and scorpions and snakes and all the different things that are in this part of the world as they're slowly closing in on each other. I don't know if Saul even knew that he finally had David by the tail, that they're, that they're now encompassing David and his men. I suspect he didn't. Otherwise, I don't think a messenger would be enough to draw him off. But maybe he did. So that's the situation. This is about to happen. We're probably, we're, we are within hours or maybe a day or two of actual all-out warfare between David and his men and Saul and his men. And instead, a messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. Um, verse 28, we're going to see a problem with this. You should, you're asking like, wait a minute, if David is hiding from Saul, and Saul is now following David into the wilderness. Who's protecting Israel? I mean, it's, it's either Saul or David, and they're, they're both kind of tied up with each other. Who's protecting Israel, right? This is the, you know, when, when mom's reaching over into the back seat to get the attention of the child in the back seat, and someone's like, hey, who's steering the car, right? That's a I feel, like, I feel like something's being missed out on here. That's exactly what's going on. It turns out the Philistines catch on. No one's steering the car, so the Philistines attack. They attack, and they, take, they, they move in. We don't know exactly what goes on, but they move in. They make a raid against the land, and Saul has a decision to make. David is fleeing and cannot engage them. Saul is chasing him and so far is not engaging. In verse 28, so Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place is called the Rock of Escape. Now, if we're not careful, um, one, that word escape is probably translationally not the right choice. The word there is divide. Shylock, it means divide. Um, and so it's not a, it's, it's not, escape is, is really, this is the only place it's used, escape. It's probably referencing not the fact that David escaped from this situation, but that there was a division. I want to offer my opinion. There's lots of opinions. Um, is it because there's so many divide seams and riverbeds and, 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 and that kind of chasms around this? Maybe. I like the argument that this is because Saul's mind is divided. That's why this gets a new name, which is Saul's mind is divided. He has to choose between this and that. I think that's plausible. My favorite, though, is this. That this in this chapter about deliverance is, this is the final deliverance in the chapter. But whose deliverance is it? I think the instinct is to say this is clearly David's deliverance. David's trapped. He's surrounded by Saul and his men. And so David is delivered by this messenger. But I'm not so sure. Imagine, if you will, the messenger doesn't show up or Saul doesn't heed it. And instead, what we get is a pitched battle between David and his 600 and Saul and however many men he has. Who do you think wins that fight? I don't think it's Saul. I don't think Saul's going to deliver, I don't think God's going to deliver David into Saul's hand. He just promised not to do it. I think he would have delivered Saul into David's hand and David, would have David and his men would have slaughtered the armies of Israel and probably killed Saul if he hadn't have escaped which is exactly what David doesn't want to do. David is doing everything he can to avoid this fight. Saul is the one picking the fight, but Saul is also the one who's going to lose the fight if it ever happens. We know that. Instead, what we get is God sends his messenger, which, 
and I think this is the key, divides, puts a division between the army of David and the army of Saul. Saul goes to fight the Philistines. David gets to go back into hiding. God rescues the armies of Israel from slaughtering each other here in this, and by this hilltop. And I think that's really what's going on here, is I think we would have seen the end of it here. Keep in mind, this is, Jonathan is apparently with Saul. God is going to one other time, uh, the last time. This is, by the way, this is what we saw in this chapter is the last time Jonathan and David will see each other. That's it. Jonathan was wrong when Jonathan said, you'll be king and I'll be by your side. And the truth is, no, you won't. Because you'll be dead before David becomes king. This is a, it's a hard picture, but Jonathan and David are rescued from having to fight each other here. And that's what's going to happen again. I believe this is God giving Saul yet one more chance to do the right thing. Somehow Saul chooses rightly here. If he chooses wrong, he dies. God intervenes not by delivering Saul into David's hand, but by delivering the armies of Israel and Saul and David the chance to avoid the fate this time. He protects David from being the one who has to kill Saul, which David has begged God not to cause him to do. Saul leaves. David gets to move on. He moves on to a place called Ein Gedi. Verse 29, David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Ein Gedi. Next week, I'm going to introduce you to Ein Gedi, one of my favorite places on the planet. I think it's fascinating. To give you a correct picture, could you show, show the first picture? Um, this is, there you go. That's, this is overlooking, and I'll explain more about this picture. This is overlooking the wilderness of the Judean wilderness. That's what it looks like. So again, if you were picturing East Texas, stop. That's wrong. Um, the next picture shows a group of us hiking through this wilderness. This is actually at Ein Gedi, um, or near Masada. Can't tell for sure from that picture. But um, they look all the same. In that they're, they're all in the Judean wilderness. They're just a, a few blocks from each other in the Judean wilderness. So this is what it looks like out there. So and when you're picturing this, when next week when I get to unpack what Ein Gedi is and where Ein Gedi is and, and what all it means. And this is where David is going to go to, to make his home. It's more than just visit there. This time it's going to say he's going to go and abide there. There's going to be a, a living condition. He's going to choose it as a, as a new home for himself. We don't know how long he stays there, maybe years. Um, so I'm going to unpack and, and show you all about this next time. I want to take it as just a, a tiny little moment, kind of like a word from our sponsor. Um, we go every couple of years, uh, and Lord willing, we'll be going next June, in June of 24. If you're interested in going, send me an email, or we will also be letting you know, I think it's October 8th. Is that right? October 8th, we're going to have uh, an interest meeting. So put that on your calendar on Sunday afternoon. We'll have an interest meeting. But um, it is wild. I, I love being able to introduce people to it when we're there. I will do my best to introduce it to you next Sunday as well to understand what we're dealing with as God uh, provides there um, this beautiful picture. <clears throat> if you will, uh, go ahead and stand with me as we talk about that David is going to be settling into God's right hand right in the middle of the wilderness especially if you feel like you're facing wilderness these days. Make sure you come next week as we unpack what the wilderness means um, and what it is for us. I want to I rest today. I want, as we have our time of invitation here, if, that you, if you've been through our welcome home process and you're ready to come and join our dysfunctional family, you can come do that in a moment. If you didn't know that this Christian faith is a rational faith, that there's actually um, rational defense for even the most difficult things that we talk about, Man, that's new to you and you want to learn more about that, we'd love to talk with you about that. If you have, for the first time, you recognize, I would like to be resting in the right hand and comforted by the right hand of an almighty God, and, and I recognize that he is calling me into his hands and into his arms, 
um, I would like to put my faith in him and, and, uh, and let you guys know that. We'd love to celebrate that with you this morning as well. You can pray with us here. There'll be those in the corner to pray with you. Um, however God leads you to respond. My, our goal during this time of invitation is for us to be listening. Even if we're singing and praying, we're also listening. Let me wrap up with this passage from Psalm 18. And the God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless, he made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend the bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me. Your gentleness has made me great. The very words of God.